So uh, it's good to be with you today. Uh, my name is Matt Kerber. I'm pastor of City Reform. You've already uh, been introduced to me if you don't know me. Um, it, is, uh, it was a deep sadness today to reflect on the anniversary of a, a loss for our congregation. I know our children are already, they know to go and they're going now. Um, you know, as I, I think back over the last uh, year, um, it's often the case that uh, we're in places where we have to sort of uh, control and direct our emotion. Uh, we take what we feel accurately about the world and we try to integrate it with what God calls us to do. I'm often in the role of needing to do that as a pastor. Um, but it's often I find myself getting most emotional when I'm here with you, in front of you, speaking. Um, sometimes it's the heightened emotion of being before people that can heighten your own emotions. But it's also, I think, a sense in which I believe deeply that you all are safe for me. And thank you for that. Um, so uh, if you see me, some in preaching, I will get a little emotional at times. And if you knew me in other settings, you might be surprised that I don't uh, cry a lot in other places in my life. Um, but uh, I hope that we can continue to be that uh, for each other, a place where we wrestle with the hard things in life um, and provide uh, the freedom and the safety uh, to process that together. This uh, Christmas season, we're moving through a series of sermons where we reflect on the names of Jesus Uh, places in particular where Jesus is named, he's introduced to us. We're looking at each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're looking at the places where Jesus is introduced. Often he's introduced with a name. Uh, Two weeks ago we heard the names of Jesus and Christ, the ones we most associate with Jesus. We also heard that name we sang of today, Emmanuel, God with us. Last week, uh, Nate Kiesel, a church planner, was a guest preacher, and he spoke about the prologue of the Gospel of John, where Jesus is identified as the Word of God, this name that Jesus wasn't necessarily called on a daily basis, but it tells us so much about who he is. This week, we'll look at the Gospel of Mark. Mark is generally is the shortest of all the Gospels. Sometimes commentators say he's moving quickly, he's in a hurry. And so he starts very quickly, not with the birth of Jesus or anything in his early childhood years, but his introduction to ministry. In this passage today, we see Jesus introduced to us, but it's a very interesting naming sequence. The naming of Jesus here is not only by Mark in his introductory verse, but he's also spoken of by the Heavenly Father as the Beloved Son. This is intriguing, powerful, and important. We're going to read the passage, and we'll think together about what it means that Jesus is named this way by God. Let me read the passage, Mark 1, 1 through 15. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. There are two characters that are dominant in the passage today. The first is John the Baptist. Uh, We'll return to him next week in the Gospel of John, so we won't say a lot this week. But uh, John has spoken here as of having a ministry of preparation in verse 2. He was preparing people through repentance to receive Jesus and to respond appropriately to him. He was also preparing them to identify Jesus. Part of John's role was to announce Jesus. We also see that after his arrest, Jesus picks up aspects of John's ministry. He expands it and fulfills it, but there are parts of it that are still there. John has a role of preparation. He also has the role of being one who baptizes Jesus, which is significant. We'll speak of it some today, but even more next week. Today we turn our attention to Jesus, the second character in the Gospel of Mark. John will, after this section, fade into the background and Jesus will be the central character. And there are several things that happen to him here that are significant. First of all, Jesus is baptized. Uh, And then, after his baptism, he's named. This naming is unlike other namings in the Bible because there is a voice from heaven speaking to him that he is the beloved son, having the pleasure of the Father. But then immediately after this profound and extraordinary event, the text goes in a very different direction. Jesus is driven into the wilderness alone. He's tempted among the wild animals of the desert. The other gospel writers tell us he is fasting. In a place of deprivation and need, Jesus is vulnerable and he's tempted. And then as his ministry begins, there's also an ominous note. John, his predecessor, is arrested. This doesn't bode well for Jesus in his public ministry. He had been so closely identified with John, and the message will have many similarities. If they do this to John, what will they do to Jesus? So immediately after this high note, this extraordinary, wondrous note, and the the baptism and the naming of Jesus, there are these strands of darkness that pervade the text. That's fascinating for me to think about. I think in many ways it connects to our own experiences. We often experience together the highs and the lows, the wonder and the darkness. We see in Jesus' affirmation from the Heavenly Father, and then days, we know from other places, 40 days of fasting, temptation, preparation for a ministry that will lead to rejection and death. In many ways, I think this captures the true moment of the Christmas story. It's typical for us to focus on the aspects and elements of wonder in the Christmas story. The Son of God given to us, joy to the world, and all the beauty of a baby in a manger. And yet the Christmas story is one that's always surrounded and framed by threads of darkness, sadness, 
loss. We remember the baby born in the manger, but this baby was born to save the world. We're reminded of the severity of the mission of Jesus, a mission that would lead to death and the darkness and opposition of the world. I believe as a pastor, knowing many of you as I do, that these two themes together can represent what many of us experience at Christmas. It is a season where we often celebrate, and appropriately so, accent the joy and the wonder of a beautiful season. I think one of the reasons why Christmas is special, even in the world beyond the church, is there's an element of wonder and transcendence and hope that pervades. But many of us also know that the holiday season, Christmas, and what goes with it, can also be a time of loss. We see the joy and the wonder, the family, the cookies, the presents, the light, vacation time, more cookies. We also feel loss and difficulty, strained budgets, family tensions, too many cookies. And for many of us, the season can be overshadowed by painful memories of a loss. There are others in our congregation that are experiencing loss this holiday season. First Christmas without someone that we care deeply about. A brokenness in our family or marriage relationships that sometimes is hard even to speak about. But perhaps some of us come to the holiday season with the dull, ever-present, throbbing hurt of missed expectations, families we long to have but were never given. Together, wander and darkness find their place in this season. And I believe this passage helps us to think of them both. I'd like to do that today. We'll see both the wonder and the darkness in the passage. And then we'll think about some lessons that we can learn from this as we seek to apply it to our own lives. How do we see the wonder and the darkness in the passage? First, we see wonder in the baptism of Jesus. If you're a student of the Bible, you may have a question lurking in the back of your mind. If John was baptizing Jesus for the repentance and remission of sins, why was Jesus, he was baptizing the people for that. Why did he baptize Jesus, the one who would be the sinless Lamb of God given in our place? Well, actually, John himself asked that question. Matthew records that in his gospel. He says, Jesus, I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize me. Jesus responds by saying, I am baptized that all righteousness might be fulfilled. We are told that Jesus baptizes, is baptized to be fully identified with humanity. This is part of the wonder of Christmas. Emmanuel, God incarnate, that the eternal Son of God took on flesh to live among us. He identified with us in his life, in his birth, and also in his baptism. Here, he's baptized in our place, so to speak. Many scholars, when they look at the passage, notice the many similarities between Jesus and the people who had gone before him. Just as the people of Israel, taken by Moses out of captivity, spent 40 years in the wilderness, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness, in deprivation, facing trials and temptations of many kind. One scholar says it this way succinctly, Jesus is Israel reduced to one man. Others see contrast here where Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. Our first father Adam was tempted in the garden. Jesus here stands for all humanity, identifying with us, 
in baptism and suffering and in temptation. That's the wonder of his identification with us. There's also wonder in the naming of Jesus in this account. We hear something here that's extraordinary. It happens uh, only uh, a few times in the Gospels and almost never in the Bible. We hear the voice of God speaking from the heavens. Not only that, we see the Son of God incarnate among us receiving his commendation and we see the Spirit descending, visible for humans to see, descending like a dove on Jesus to empower him for ministry. From the very beginnings of the church, the, the Christians wrestled with how to understand what the Bible taught about God. One God in three persons. We summarize that teaching with the word Trinity and emphasize with the scriptures that through all eternity, God was one God in three persons, united and yet relational, diverse, able to relate together. What's so extraordinary about this passage is that not just the Trinity being talked about, but the Trinity on display. God in his most hidden, most essential nature chooses to be revealed here. And we listen in, as it were, to the voice of God the Father speaking to his beloved Son. We have been invited, so to speak, into the inner sanctum of God, where God himself in his very being, Father, Son, and Spirit, is communicating the love and affirmation and joy that has characterized God from all of eternity. This is admittedly uh, mind-blowing in many ways, and I don't want to digress too far, but it is an extraordinary feature of the passage, the wonder of God the Father speaking to God the Son for us to hear. God says, you are my Son, not because he was making him the son, adopting him, so to speak, but he was announcing and reminding and reaffirming this unique identity that Jesus had. For those listening, it wouldn't have been common for them to think of God calling someone their son, but not entirely unexpected. The Old Testament had occasions where God spoke to his people as a whole, the people of Israel as his son. And on one occasion in Psalm 2, the king, the representative of the people, is spoken of as the Son of God. Psalm 2 is always regarded as a background text here. But this is different. While God may speak of Israel as, in some sense, having a childlike relationship, this is Jesus being, having his true eternal nature revealed. Not only does God speak of his essential nature as the, of the Son of God, But he also says to him these words, with you, I am well pleased. We know that when God the Son took on human flesh and entered the world in the person of Jesus, he accepted limitations. Jesus didn't know everything. There's a lot about this we don't really understand. But his knowledge of the future was in some places clearly limited. What makes this passage so extraordinary is Jesus hears the affirmation of the Father, and he hears the, the reminder of his unique identity precisely at the moment that he's sent off into ministry. As he goes into the darkness and the deprivation of the wilderness, the words ringing in the ears of Jesus are this, you are my son, with you I am well pleased. And that is... I'm sure, important as we consider the darkness that Jesus would enter. 
We see it here in some ways all condensed in this experience of, uh, of fasting, deprivation, and temptation. For 40 days, Jesus is in the wilderness. Mark tells us there are wild animals there. He doesn't want us to think of them as barnyard animals that are cute and cuddly, but this is a sign of the, of the danger of the place, the inhospitality, inhospi- uh, something like that, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to say, <laughs> the difficulty of his circumstance. And it's there that he's tempted. It's there afterwards, after the temptation, that the angels bring comfort to him can't help but think about the ways in which this public affirmation at the baptism must have been used by God to sustain him, used by the Spirit to sustain Jesus in his times of suffering and trials. I think it's important for us to consider one of the most fundamental aspects for all of us as people, one of our deep longings is to be known, to be named, to be affirmed. There was a television show during the 80s set in a bar in Boston called Cheers. I worked in Boston at a church. Our church office was about a block and a half from one of the buildings that the show was based on. The opening line of the uh, opening song, introduction to the show, saying these, for some of us, familiar words, it was a place where everybody knows your name. I think that simple song, that little jingle that introduced the show resonated with many people because we know in our hearts the deep desire to have our name known, to be known, to be named, to be affirmed. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus in the flesh heard the voice of a heavenly father calling his name, speaking to him and affirming him carrying him forward as he goes, not only into the desert, but to all that would follow, into a ministry that had brought John to arrest and would lead him not only to his arrest, but to his crucifixion, the darkness and the horror of the cross. Jesus knew who he was, had the blessing, the privilege of the voice of heaven speaking to him, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased does this mean for us? The wonder and the darkness of this baptism and temptation narrative. Uh, Four lessons I'd like to draw quickly from it and just touch on each of them. Uh, First of all, we notice as we look at the passage that Jesus was driven into the desert by the same spirit that met him in his baptism. The text says, verse 12, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. This tells us something about suffering. It's true that sometimes maybe often, we suffer because of our own mistakes, our own failures, our own sin. As Jimmy Buffett sang while he was wasting away in Margaritaville, again, 80s reference here, I know I'm old. He said, I know it's my own fault. Often our our suffering can be a result of things that we do wrong. There's a whole host of suffering in our life that doesn't come from our mistakes. It's not our fault. Sometimes it's the fault of others that bring suffering into our lives. They hurt us. Sometimes no person can be blamed at all. When Jesus was in the wilderness suffering, hungering, facing temptation and difficulty, there's nothing in the text that would suggest it was his fault. 
Friends, you and I, again, we can sometimes learn from our suffering. We can examine our lives and ask hard questions. What can I learn from this? But sometimes the most difficult suffering of all is that which comes and we can't tie it to anything that we did. It's tempting for us in the midst of this to to believe that all suffering must be something that we did wrong. There are characters in the Bible that voice that in many occasions. Sometimes when those around us suffer, we tell ourselves secretly if only they'd done something different, if they'd prayed more, if they'd lived differently, it wouldn't have happened. We tell ourselves that because it gives us the illusion of control. The passage we have before us reminds us there is suffering we can't control, but it is also such a comfort because it tells us that in the midst of deep sorrow and loss, we don't blame ourselves. Yes, we can learn. Sometimes we need to. But Jesus here suffers deeply and profoundly. It's not his fault. For some of you, this Christmas, the dark shadow of suffering that hangs over your season is something you didn't do. We're promised that Jesus, our great high priest, knows what it means to suffer walk into darkness and difficulty and he's able to care for us and meet us in those places secondly however we're reminded that suffering is the place of temptation it may not be it may be that our own suffering has nothing to do with our own fault but it is often the case that suffering becomes the place in which we face great temptations Jesus was tempted in the wilderness and for us We often are tempted, perhaps to justify our sin, our failure, our brokenness, when we look at those things that were done to us. The passage gives us a warning. We may not be responsible for our suffering, but we're responsible for our response to it. It's a hard message. It's a challenging message, but it's also a message that shows us the freedom in walking with Christ through difficult things. I've been thankful Uh, for the ways in which uh, Craig and Mindy have shared the difficulties of this past year as I met with them this past week. Um, They talked about the ways in which temptation was very real. Craig spoke about the challenges before them, the choices that they would make. He was speaking of his response to temptation, so to speak, a trial, a difficulty, the temptation to say, I'm just going to walk away from it all. We face in our sorrows and suffering the temptations to avoid the reality, to drown our sorrows, to seek a comfort that's false and cheap and brings more harm than good. For many of us, our suffering is a place of trial and temptation, and yet here too, God is able to meet us. He doesn't promise to take all suffering from us. Instead, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. He promises to meet us and sustain us as we walk through the trials and difficulties that we face. Third, and most importantly, the passage points us to Jesus. As Naaman spoke in his introduction today, Crispus reminds us that salvation comes from outside. The most important meaning of this passage is that Jesus, the Son of God, was named and set apart in his baptism Showing divine authority, not only over his life in that moment, but all of his ministries, three years of teaching that would culminate in his sacrificial death on the cross. 
Jesus, the eternal Son of God, was fulfilling the divine plan. And as he walked through the darkness of temptation, not only in this sort of a, a highlighted moment in the wilderness, but in the years that would follow, Jesus was faithful. When he faced his own arrest, it would culminate in the betrayal, the abandonment, and the crucifixion. Jesus was faithful. And when on the cross he cried out with a voice of abandonment and loss, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus remained faithful. Friends, sometimes the most important thing for us to remember in the midst of our difficulties, our trials, or our suffering is that God is at work and that salvation is happening beyond us. Yes, God brings it in to meet us and to change us and to shape us. But on the cross, Jesus did for us what we couldn't do ourselves. This passage, like Christmas in general, is about Jesus. It's about a plan of salvation that's bigger than our own stories. It's about a a hope for the world that's better than our own ability. It's God coming in the person of Jesus to live and to die in our place, to be raised again, that we would have hope. Fourth and finally, though, God invites us into real relationship through Jesus. The naming that Jesus hears, the blessing that he hears, this good word, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. As Christians, through faith in Jesus, because of his life, because of his salvation, because of his resurrection, as Christians and through faith in Jesus... We also hear God speak over us as sons. Today in our call to worship, we read from Ephesians chapter 1. In this, Paul speaks from a high precipice, as it were, looking down over the Christian life. And he says, in love, God predestined us to what? To adoption, to himself as sons. That word son makes us think of Jesus, but it's also spoken elsewhere of children. It's for all of us, men and women, sons of God through faith in Jesus, according to the promise of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. That word beloved is the same Greek word that Mark uses here, that we hear, we overhear, so to speak, as the the Father speaks to the Son, I, you are my beloved Son. John, in his gospel, tries to impress something of this onto the church that he's writing to, or not in his gospel, in his first letter. And our call to confession, we also heard from John as he reminds the church, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The extraordinary wonder of this passage is the reminder that even though we will never be the divine son like Jesus, we're not going to be the son of God, by faith we enter in. We stand in the place of sons through adoption. We come to God in prayer hearing the voice of Speak over us, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. Friends, isn't that what we need most in our suffering, our trials, our temptations, our difficulties, our struggles, to know in Christ 
See what manner of love the Father has given us that we would be called sons of God. It's a quick reflection from my own life. I, I speak of this fairly often, but it was three and a half years ago my, my father died suddenly. It was uh, um, not expected. Though he was older, there was a, a, an unexpected loss. We didn't have a chance for last words. A heart attack came quickly. Uh, I'm thankful I was given a gift that not everyone has. I had a father who spoke his words to me in other occasions. And after his death, I, I went and looked at my phone. I had two messages from him that were still on my phone. Um, I had probably just called him back. I didn't even listen to the message at the time. It was kind of long because he rambled on his messages. And it was quicker just to call him back. But one of the great gifts God gave me, about a week after the funeral, or, or maybe sometime, you know, maybe closer, I was able to go back to these messages from him on my phone. And uh, he, he was, you know, kind of going on and on about something that probably wasn't all that important in hindsight. But as it went, I remember how thankful I was to hear his voice speaking to me. And as it unfolded, I found myself yearning so deeply. I says, I hope he says he loves me. Oh God, would you give me that gift? Like I said, I'm thankful I, I had a father who spoke those words, a human father. In the close of one of his emails, or one of his uh, uh, messages, he, he, he just passingly said, love you, Matt. I was reminded in the aftermath that many of my friends weren't given that gift. They didn't have a father that spoke over them. My beloved... Friends, at Christmas, I invite you to see your life in a bigger story. The overarching story of a God who from all eternity has loved and known and related within himself. A God who here speaks that so freely to his son, my beloved son. We overhear that voice. And through Christ, his life his sacrifice, the forgiveness that he brings, we enter into that reality. More important than the words, wonderful gift they are, more important than the words of a, a father, a friend, a spouse. The words of a heavenly father that would speak over you and me, my beloved. Friends, would you hear that voice speaking to you it's so, so bold and audacious. I had to really go back and, and think through these connections. But you are adopted as sons, children of God, in the beloved. And God speaks that voice of joy and affirmation over you, promising that you will not be alone even in the darkness. The trials and difficulties will not be too big. But with the same love he loved us as he gave his beloved son, he promises to meet us in all things. May that be your hope and your joy this Christmas. Let's pray.